Good evening. There are no pressing announcements. Uh, we just have the call to worship. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. I worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Let's bow our hearts and heads and sign a preparation for worship. Let us stand, let us sing hymn 166. Lord and creator of all things, we gather here this evening, called by your word, to worship you and honor you and to set apart this day for you, and especially a time of worship. Thankful, Lord, that we can come, that we are able to come, Lord, and we have a place to meet. We pray, God, for your spirit upon us, that we would find joy in our salvation through Christ Jesus this evening, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to hymn 476.
verses 1 through 4. Praise your great name indeed, God, for the wonderful deliverance you gave your people of old, and not just them of old, Lord, but for your people even now. And although we do not have great and miraculous battles and the like and miracles, Lord, we have the greatest battle and miracle fought for us through Jesus Christ on the cross, seen in our lives of regeneration, of justification, of Adoption and sanctification, God Almighty, as we long for the day of full glorification, the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this evening, God Almighty, this evening as we are here, Lord, singing praises before you, God, thankful, Lord, and hearing your word, desirous to grow thereby. We pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord, and the children of the faith across the world that are under persecution, those in the Middle East, God, those in Africa and Asia and elsewhere, Lord, which... Uh, the locals wish to destroy them, wish to cut them down, wish, wish to uproot them uh, from their culture and society, God. They do not want to hear the words of our Lord and Savior. They do not wish to submit, submit to the gospel call of repentance and faith. And so, God, we ask, Spirit of truth and providence, to be with your people, to give them a church, an outward visible sign of your love for them, Lord, a church with leaders and pastors, God, to preach them the word of God. We pray, God, for the protection of those churches and buildings and the Christians themselves, Lord. And although they can lose their pastors and lose the churches, Lord, they can never lose their salvation. Thankful, God, that they still have your word hidden in their hearts and they can cry out to you, God. Be with them, we pray. Give them wisdom. Give them deliverance, Lord. Uh, give them a way of escape in those cases where it's especially bad, God Almighty. And we pray, Lord, for our ability to the extent that we can to help them uh, with our missionary outreach and contacts, Lord, through Murph as well as our own denomination. And so, God, we ask not only for their protection and their vindication, ultimately, at the coming of Christ, 
Uh, we pray, Lord, for uh, the persecution or something along the lines of difficulties upon Christians, God, that we had it so well in the West, and uh, people are losing their jobs for doing the right thing, God, and other like problems that have come and gone, uh, even under the radar at times, Lord, in our nation, that you would be with them as well, and that the churches would come alongside and help those in need and those who are standing upon your truth, Lord, and support them. We pray and ask God not only for them, but also for people in our midst, God. They're not persecuted by anything in particular, Lord, for standing upon your truth. But God, uh, they are certainly uh, dealing with the difficulties of an aged life as their body slows down, Lord, as things have changed in, in the twilight of their life here on earth. God, may you be with them, help them in their retirements, and help them as they prepare for retirement, Lord, and be with them and their families as they pray for their salvation and pray for their helpfulness. We ask, God, that you would be with us uh, who are getting older, Lord, that uh, we would accept and be patient, Lord, with our limitations and seek out the help that we need. We pray for the grandchildren of such, God, that you would help them be a good influence to the grandchildren, and even their own children, to be sure, God, uh, to be holy, to be faithful to your word, and to learn your word and to grow thereby, to be uh, good parents and good grandparents, Lord, to know that this is part of their calling and lot in life, and may their children and grandchildren accept that as well, Lord. They're a part of the family, and you've given much wisdom and experience, and they would grow close to one another, God, especially those with Christian households. And, Lord, we pray for the young amongst us as well, uh, that we would exercise and lend our strength, Lord, to those in need, uh, the aged and those who were otherwise uh, hampered or encumbered, Lord, with the difficulties and limitations in life, both bodily and otherwise, that, Lord, the young amongst us would be zealous to use their ability, to use their strength and opportunities, God, for the good of the church of Jesus Christ, and that the young and old alike would come alongside and help one another as we are called in the body of Christ, that the world may know that young or old, rich or poor as well, and otherwise divided and different in everyday life, Lord, would come together in the church of Jesus Christ to take care of one another as best we can in our callings, Lord. And we ask in particular for our efforts, not only in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church at the national level, but through the Presbyteries and local churches, God, for home missions, our home missionaries, God, that we would continue to be faithful to your word, to instruct and train and raise up men, who would go out to the highways and byways of this nation and establish more churches to speak to the lost and dying fellow citizens. As Paul had zeal for the Jews, may we have zeal for our fellow Americans, God, that they may too come to the knowledge and the submission of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Be with them, Lord, our committees and the men involved with the missions across this nation uh, for their zeal, for their uh, wisdom, for their prioritization of the uh, limitations and opportunities that they have before them, monetarily and otherwise, God. We're thankful, Lord, that we have a denomination of presbyteries that are desirous, Lord, God above, to plant faithful churches, churches that would call upon the name of the Lord our God. And may this thing continue in our lifetime, Lord, and continue on very beyond that as well. For the good of your kingdom, Lord, and for your glorious name's sake, we pray all these things, both spoken and unspoken. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. rise praise God from whom all blessings flow praise him all creatures here below praise him above ye heavenly host praise Father Son and Holy Ghost We give these tithes and offerings, God, with hearts and delighted in being able to give some effort and some token of our love towards the work of the church and towards the expansion of your kingdom, God, and for your namesake. We ask, Lord, your blessings upon them. Amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to Psalm 32.
Psalm 32. You'll recognize part of the psalm, I believe, once we start reading through it. So it's somewhat popular that way. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God, Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. In a time when you have been found, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and a bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let us pray. In these words of the psalmist God of David, his heart crying out to you, God, may our hearts cry out as well, with the blessedness and the joy of being forgiven. Help us, Lord, if we have struggled with that, God, to carry on in our lives to know that the sins that we have committed, yes, even the most heinous transgression, can be and is forgiven through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. To those in whom there is no deceit, but rather those who who are not pretending to be Christians, but who indeed trust in the Lord, mercy shall surround them. Amen. There are two principles, as we shall see, interwoven through this psalm. It's an interesting perspective. I think we will see here, naturally being the fruit of a heart of grief, and gratitude, these principles are not lined up neatly here, but go back and forth to some degree. It's not a theological treatise, but a song of praise and gratefulness. And so I'm going to follow Matthew Henry's thematic division. It's a thematic division, and not strictly a, a verse division. As you'll see, there's some back and forth as we go through here. And I think it's helpful because it highlights the gospel in this psalm. And he describes it as gospel grace and gospel duty. And let's look more carefully upon those two ideas. The first point, gospel grace, how God guides us and empowers us to a gospel response. You see what I'm saying there? How God guides and empowers us to a gospel response. As we know, as good Calvinists, that the faith and trust that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is a gift from God specifically by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this highlights that, this language of gospel grace. It's over against gospel duties, we'll hear in a bit. The pardon of sin is the first thing that stands out in this psalm. The first thing I believe that you heard, many of us, and realize, oh, I remember this psalm, because Paul quotes it in Romans. Specifically, chapter 4. This great passage of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, the glory of God alone. Romans 4, 4, 5, 6, and 7 is a section where he talks about Abraham, then he talks about David, and he ties it to the theme to his audience of being justified, not by works, not by things that you have done, not even by faith, properly speaking, but by the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We read in verse 4 of Romans, Now to him who works, that is, he's saying, in writing to a Jewish audience, as we know the good Jews and the Pharisaical background, clearly there in the New Testament, if you try hard enough, you'll get to heaven. If you obey enough of the Torah, the law of God, both the ceremonial and the moral law, as well as the judicial law. And then God will weigh things in the balance, and if you have enough good works, you get to heaven. That's it in a nutshell. Paul says, no, 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 no. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You're trying to pay off a debt if you try to obey enough to get to heaven. If you try to obey enough, 
more precisely, to be justified before God. And he continues, but to him who does not work, he's not trying to save himself by his own purity before God, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. That just blows the mind of the Pharisees. What? How can this be? And Paul, being a good godly Jew, as opposed to an ungodly Jew like the Pharisees, understands that the theology he's bringing to them in the New Testament era is not de novo or out of nothing and brand new, but rather already there in seed form in the Old Testament. Messiah is there, the person of the Messiah is there, and the work of the Messiah. And this is clearly one of the works or the fruits, more precisely, of his work for us in redemption. And so, he does what we do today, which is quote the Bible, specifically the Old Testament. <laughs> Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, without how good you are, how obedient you are to the Ten Commandments, apart from you are justified, declared righteous, and it's a blessed reality that David is writing about, Paul is arguing to his Jewish audience, right there in the Old Testament. You Pharisees, I'm not bringing up anything new. You can go to the Old Testament read it yourself. And so, he's quoting here in verse 7 then of Romans 4. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. He's quoting... Psalm 32. Now, you won't always know that, of course, unless you have a good Bible that gives you a little footnote and says, this is Psalm 32. (laughs) Because Paul doesn't tell you, I'm quoting Psalm 32, he just said, I'm quoting David. That's why it's helpful to have some of those little notes there. So you can see the connection between the Old and New Testament, that the difference between the Testaments is not absolute, but relative. Right? Some of the things have changed, but the principles are the same. They're saved the same way as we are saved. Repentance and faith specifically in Jesus Christ and justified as well. The psalm talks about justification in the opening verses here. And Paul, or Paul, David, as we read here, just writes as though it's obvious. He's not like, oh, I got something new I got to convince you guys about. But he's writing to his audience, because remember, he didn't write for us per se. David wasn't thinking of you and you and me. He was thinking of his own people. They knew more theology than we realize is part of the point of that. It's not how obedient we are to God's law or how often we attend to worship that justifies you before the law courts of God and heaven above. That's the more precise category there, justification. Rather, it is God's mercy through Jesus Christ our Lord. God imputes righteousness apart from works is the conclusion that Paul draws from Psalm 32, although that language per se is not there in Psalm 32. Uh, He quotes it explicitly, of course. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered, and the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And I hope you see already there, as I taught you in Proverbs in the afternoon, the Psalms have a lot of parallelisms as well saying the same thing two or three different ways. In this case, it's three lines saying the same thing in three different perspectives. We all see that? Forgiven, covered, not impute iniquity. It's like describing a three-dimensional object with three axes, right? With height and what depth. And here we have a moral reality of our salvation and justification described as forgiven, covered, and not imputed. Our sins are not counted against our record in heaven. Our criminal record, I don't think many of us here have a criminal record, but we know what it is. We've seen it on TV and the like. It's a similar thing here. Criminal record in heaven is wiped out. Our sins are forgiven. And Christ's perfect obedience to God's law is now on our record before God. That's justification. And Paul, David, is obviously talking about justification because he uses the language of impute. The Lord does not impute iniquity. Not sanctification, 
that is our life of holiness before him that changes and ebbs and flows and is not perfect until Christ comes back and we sin no longer, because you still sin. But justification, which does not change, it's a declarative act in the law courts, you are innocent. And not just you are innocent, but your debt has been fulfilled and you are perfect and righteous before God as though you actually obey the law and thought were need. But it wasn't, it was Christ. His perfection is now our perfection. That's what he's talking about. That's what David's talking about. And Paul draws the proper inference as a good and necessary consequence, to use the precise language here, of this. But what's interesting in Psalm 32 here in these opening verses is that David only mentions half of justification. The forgiveness of sins. The wiping away of not imputing our guilt to us. Right? The negative, the forgiveness of sin, the freedom from punishment, and no longer on our way to hell. The other half of justification is the declarative act of being righteous. Declarative act that we are righteous, not being, but rather God has declared that we are righteous in Christ Jesus. His righteousness is imputed to us. Our sins are imputed to him, the great exchange. David only mentions half of it. Paul mentions the other half, doesn't he? Puts the two together. Paul gets it. He says they're of a package because it is taught in some theological circles, some many <laughs> theological circles and conservative Christian circles or whatever, Roman Catholics and the like and Arminians and the whole nine yards, that it's only half, the half of your sins are forgiven. Okay, but now what about the debt I still owe? Not just I've sinned, I've broken God's commandments and that requires punishment, but I still have the call of perfection. That hasn't changed. God's law is perfect. He's not like I'll give you a pass. And yet, they, they leave that wide open. I grew up thinking, well, you know, great, God covered my sins. Now I have to, what, have a blank slate. It's wiped away. That's what baptism does, for example, in Roman Catholicism. And you can start over from ground zero and see how obedient you can be. See that? You try that in your justification, you're going to hell. You can't do it enough. Sure, in your sanctification, you're supposed to strive. And you will sin. How do you get the sin covered? That's your justification. It's covered all those sins. Forever and ever, in fact, you're declared righteous before God. And you always plead the blood of Christ Jesus. So that's the fullness of it. The perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to us is the conclusion that Paul draws. Now, he, under here, the theme of gospel grace, that God has prepared and directed and moved us by his spirit to receive the grace and the growth thereby to be justified in this particular case, as well as sanctify. God, in the midst of giving us that grace, protects us from foolishness. So in verse 7, we read, You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with the songs of deliverance. So clearly there, he's talking about the good news that God is for me, not just that he justifies me, but that he protects me from my foolishness. He's Kind of vague here, of course, as he often is, uh, or general and broad, I don't want to use the word vague in a negative sense, it's like he's trying to hide something, but it doesn't give a lot of details. But clearly, he's being protected, perhaps from foolishness, certainly from his sin, the consequences of his sin, not only in justification in the law courts of God, uh, but in the here and now in our sanctification and trying to obey God in thought, word, and deed, and we fall into trip and he have the consequences of sin, but the full consequences thereof, however, are preserved from us by God himself. That's part of the gospel grace of our Lord and Savior. He protects us from our foolishness, from ignoring God, perhaps, and the fullness thereof, and from the consequences of sin in various and sundry ways. Things that he describes uh, there as a flood of great waters in the prior verse. He obviously doesn't mean he's going to be washed out but rather the flood of waters of the consequences of sin, of difficulties around him perhaps, although it's probably his own sins because that's what he emphasizes in the opening verses. Now, verse 8, divine guidance. So right after he says, you shall surround me with songs of deliverance, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye, he says. And there we read of God uh, through his to the lips of David here, uh, urging us to be instructed, 
to be protected. God's grace instructs us and teaches us in the way we should go. It calls us to what? Repentance. It calls us not only to repentance, to uh, eschew and reject the life of sin or the particular sins you're fighting against, to keep saying no, 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 but also instructs us and guides us to faith and trust in Him, our Lord and Savior. And so gospel grace protects us from foolishness as well as gives us a divine guidance, God's special providence, which I preached upon uh, a year or so ago. Maybe I have to preach on it again. That God has directed things such that the church and our lives are for his glory and he protects us in various and sundry ways. In other words, another way of describing this, I think, with respect to God instructing and guiding us is his spirit moves in our lives and gives us regeneration, gives us repentance and faith, such that we do respond to the gospel. We say yes to Jesus when everyone else says no. He's preparing us in more than just preparatory grace in the Arminian sense, but an efficacious preparation wherein God directs us to the fullness of salvation and brings circumstances to bear in our lives that we would listen and that we would hear and that we would repent and that we would believe. It's a preserving grace as well, not just a preparatory grace, the grace that gives us a life of repentance, a sensitivity to sin, such that we are desirous, even now, to hear his word and to continue to grow and not give up. We are not aborted. We don't, we don't become born again and just give up. We've, we've, we've denied everything. We want nothing to do with the Lord and Savior. No, the grace of God instructs us. The grace of God preserves us, as we saw in verse 7, from trouble, and that certainly is the greatest of all troubles. The gospel grace is how God guides us and empowers us to a gospel response, to respond positively and correctly to the gospel, both in the initial sense of being born again. In the case of adults, it's usually pretty clear when that is. Children and young young babies, you don't always know exactly when that is. And to persevere beyond that point, just keep going and living and following God, even through the ups and downs of life and the struggles of doubt at times. The psalm does not specify uh, the method as much that is of gospel grace uh, beyond our repentance and grieving of sin and his foolishness and protection, but we know that God gives us and the psalmist recognizes the power of preaching and the word of God and the prophets of old who are also preachers of old, the church and the worship of God and the sacraments and the like given to us by our Lord that we may become saved and stay saved. That's gospel grace. Gospel duty is how we should respond to the gospel. Now, by gospel duty, I think you should know, I don't mean a new law replaced the old law. I don't mean, well, hey, we had the Ten Commandments here, and God said, forget that, I'll give you a new commandment. And that new commandment that fulfills the Ten Commandments somehow, or nulls and voids it, it's a new way of obeying, is to repent and believe. So your repentance and your belief are new works. Catch that? Baxter taught that. Be careful of reading Richard Baxter. It's called neo-nomianism. Neo, new, nomos, law, new law. You don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. God says, hey, isn't that great? You just have to obey repentance and faith. And as I think we all know, it can be hard to repent, can't it? You've got to swallow your pride. That's kind of hard. And faith doesn't come so easily. So I don't know what he, thinks, what he thought he was doing. Making an e- easier faith, an easier law, more precisely. Some of the Armenians have that variation. They're trying to say God made it easier. I don't think Baxter took that approach. I'm not an expert in him, but I know he taught that. I've read it. And the expert Puritans teach that. The historians, just be aware of that. That's what that is. That's not what I'm saying here by gospel duty. The word duty is more quote marks. It's your response, right? I've said this before, and I'll say it again. God does not repent for you. God does not believe for you. You have to repent. You have to believe. That's what I'm talking about. But that, of course, itself is not a new work that you come before God. Look, I obeyed, I repented. Can that substitute from the place of the Ten Commandments now? No, it's Christ. Christ has done it all. He obeyed the law. That's what counts. Your repentance, however, is your change of mind and your heart by the power of the Spirit and your faith is you apprehending what Christ has done for you. And he is the warrant for heaven, not your faith or your repentance. That's the difference. Faith is instrumental, that's the technical term, uh, not the grounds of our salvation. 
So it's a requirement, but not a requirement by which it satisfies the divine law of God. Repentance, question 87 of the Catechism. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace, right? It comes from God. Grace is unmerited favor. Whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of sin, and the apprehension of the mercies of God in Christ, sees his sins, sees Christ, does with grief and hatred of sin, turn from it to God with full purpose of endeavor after new obedience. Now I'm not going to go through all that. I've preached on it before, and I'll probably preach on it again. It's always good to go over the basics. But I wanted to read that to remind us again that repentance isn't just, I feel sorry, it's not just crocodile tears, obviously, but a hatred of sin and a turning towards God and Christ, which itself, of course, becomes faith. And you're talking more precisely faith or trust in Christ with the full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. You want to do the right thing. Repentance itself, the confession tells us in chapter 15, repentance, although repentance be not to be rested in, you don't rest and rely upon your repentance as any satisfaction for sin. God is not saying if you repent, that's good enough, that covers your sin. No, it doesn't. Christ covers your sin. Or any cause of the pardon thereof. It's not a cause of pardon, which is an act of God's free grace in Christ. Yet it is of necessity, and that none may expect pardon without it. You've got to have it, but it's not the grounds of you going to heaven. That's the point there. And we see that here, of course, negatively in the opening verses. It's, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Not blessed is the man who repents, and God accepts that repentance as though it covers the debt he owes the Lord. Confession of sin he has in verses 3 to 6. This is part of the gospel response and the gospel duty. Because when you repent, repentance is the act and confession. Uh, repentance is the change of mind, more precisely, in the New Testament word. And confession is that which in your heart or your lips, in your mind, you're saying what you're, you are doing in your repentance. <laughs> you confess and acknowledge that you are a sinner. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, he says in verse 3. Through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. God is working upon him. Obviously, he has guilt here. I acknowledge my sin to you, he says in verse 5, and my iniquity I have not hidden. But up to that point, he did hide it. And it was a, a burden upon him. And his life force, as they say in some circles, was turned into the drought of summer. He was shriveled up on the inside. He groaned. His bones were wasting away. It's an imagery of how much grief of sin he felt upon himself. He had not confessed it yet. And then finally in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave my iniquity. Repentance must include confession that you are a sinner who needs a Savior. And Christians who are born again still must confess their sins. It's not like you're, you're saved. Now I don't have to re- ask for repentance. David was clearly saved. He asked for repentance. We must always live a life of confession and repentance. Not to each other, unless we sin against each other, but always, always to God. A burden that wore him down. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. In a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. They cry out to the Lord for this cause, that is because of sin and the weights of guilt upon them, and God will protect them from the great floods of waters, of the great waters of guilt and of sin. God uses guilt to bring confession, is what we're seeing here. The gospel duty is to confess. That's part of repentance, to confess your sins. And God uses the circumstances of life as well as our own sins to bring us to that point. Certainly, unbelievers don't want to hear that. That's why they don't come flocking to all the churches. They don't want to hear their need of repentance, that there are wicked sinners. The church, of course, is pressured to water down the call of repentance and the call of confession. And that's why it's important for us in our preaching, in our own lives, to mention specific sins so you can specifically repent of them, not just of general vague ideas. 
The confession there in verses 5 and 6, as I read there, I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He does not say, I felt like I was forgiven. He simply says, I confess, and you forgave. It's not about feelings. I hope feelings are there. I hope they feel good after you repent of your sin. I hope you feel bad when you are persisting in sin. But not always. doesn't always happen. You must go by what the Word of God, as David himself acknowledges. He acknowledges his sins. He repents of his sin. He confesses his sin. And he simply says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He knows it. That's what faith, trust does. That idea of trust and trusting in God is implicit there in verse 2. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. That is, he's not sneaky and beguiling. But rather, on the flip side, as we read in verse 10, he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Repentance is clearly here, as well as trust or faith in the Messiah to come, in David's case, and the Messiah who has already come in our case. That's obviously gospel duty. We are called to repent and we are called to believe. And have a belief that's unfeigned, that's not pretending, that's not deceitful, but rather sincere, saying, I need Jesus, I need to be saved. Forgive me, Father. This confession, repentance, and faith is part of the Christian life. That's what we are called to, to ask God for forgiveness, and God indeed will forgive us from big sins to little sins. We know the big sins that David has done. He murdered. Not with his own hand, but he was the mastermind. He committed adultery and broke a marriage vow. Verses 9 through 10, we read, Do not be like a horse or like a mule, which have no understanding. What does that description remind you of? A proverb? Don't be a... Another word for donkey. That's, that's what we say, right? That's what he's saying here, isn't he? He's saying, stop being so stubborn. and so difficult. Don't be like them. They have no understanding, and they have to be harnessed to be forced to do something right. <laughs> That's not true repentance, obviously. That's forced repentance. But rather, give it most freely before our Lord and Savior. And he gives a, a negative warning there. Many sorrows shall be with the wicked. Those who refuse to confess their sins, to repent and trust in our Lord and Savior, live a life of misery. Just look at the Hollywood stars. Look at the Johnny Depp case the miserable life they live of drugs and hating on one another. It's always hiding behind a glitter and glam of Hollywood and the pictures and the media. They're absolutely miserable. Don't ever forget that. Negative examples can be very helpful, especially for kids, to get that impression upon them. This is what the world, the way of its life leads, is death and misery, even here and now. And he also gives a positive urging, not just a negative. Don't be a donkey and the many sorrows that will come upon you. But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. You want mercy? Then you must repent. Repentance must be accompanied, of course, with trust and faith. As he says here, trust in the Lord. Lord, the God, the covenant-keeping Lord of the covenants. Trust that God will forgive you as he promises in the gospel. A trust that's sincere, as I said before. That is why it is good news, because the gospel means good news, that he freely forgives. Not because you've obeyed enough, not because you've repented enough, or believed enough. But for Christ's sake, who died and shed his blood for us. This is a blessed state to be in. Be glad, verse 11, in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Rejoice in the gospel, both its grace and its duty. Rejoice that God grants you the power of the gospel duty to repent and confess and to trust in him for salvation. Rejoice in God's gospel grace, his mercy, the forgiveness of your sins, the free justification by grace through faith and the gift of repentance and faith itself. 
And let us often meditate on this chapter and these truths of God's mercy upon those who sincerely repent and trust in our Messiah to save us. Amen. Let us pray. Indeed, God, let us rejoice and be glad for the good that you've given us. For you have declared us righteous, Lord, and you've not imputed to us our iniquities, but rather imputed to us the righteousness of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And you've given us, God, the gift of the duty, gospel duties of repentance and faith in you, Lord. May we continue to exercise this and encourage one another to continue to exercise this calling in our life, that we could shout for joy, all we who are upright in heart by your grace. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing Psalm 32b. 32b. grace of the Lord and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. 
Amen. Amen.